You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Well, hello, and welcome to Unquirking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today, oh, oh boy, here we are. I've got a fantastic interview with author Joshua M. Green, who's also a popular lecturer on Holocaust history, and his biographies have sold more than half a million copies worldwide. Now, Green is the recipient of numerous awards for his books and films. He sits on the board of Yale University's Video Archive for Holocaust Testimonies and has served as Director of Strategic Planning for the United Nations Summit of Religious and Spiritual Leaders. Now, this begs the question, why the heck is he talking to me? Well, he was on this show, Uncorking a Story, to talk about his new book, which is entitled Unstoppable. It's about Ziggy Wilzig and his astonishing journey from Auschwitz survivor and penniless immigrant to Wall Street legend. Now, before we get to this book, I I had to uncork Joshua's story a little bit um, because that's what I like to do on the show. I like to to talk about authors and um, kind of their their path to writing. Those of you who've listened to the show for a while know that. And uh, I think that actually caught him off guard a little bit. (laughs) He's like, I thought we heard a talk about Ziggy. Well, yeah, we were. But I also wanted to talk about um, Joshua's story. And, and man, it's really, really interesting. I mean, we dig into a little bit about how he went from being, you know, a hippie who uh, who got to George with, uh, got to George, he got to jam with George Harrison. Um, he lived in an ashram for for about 12 years. And uh, really just, just a fascinating, <laughs> fascinating life. Um, and of course, he goes from, from doing that to, to becoming a Holocaust scholar. And uh, along the way, I, I did learn that uh, he and his subject for, for his latest book do, do share a few things in common, but I'll, uh, I'll let you listen in for, for that. I won't let the cat out of the bag. Now, before I roll the interview, I, I just want to reflect on something that Joshua said during the course of our conversation, and it was that he was approached to write this book by one of Ziggy's sons, and Joshua's instinct was to turn him down. He, he was not going to write this book. Um, Claiming that, you know, he's he's written uh, too much about darkness in the past, and he thought it was time to focus on something that would bring more light. And of course, this was before he knew Ziggy's story, you know, which which is at its core, a celebration of human ingenuity, a testament to the power of faith and a tale of triumph in the face of adversity. So once he, uh, you know, learned a little bit more about what the story was about, and did his own research. He spent the next seven years of his life you know, interviewing, I think it was about 100 people, basically everybody who he could find who had some kind of interaction uh, with Ziggy Wilsig. And I tell you, it's a story that I needed to hear right now. You know, it is, it is, I mean, there's a lot of darkness to it, don't get me wrong, but really it's a very uplifting story. You know, I've been on a diet of shows and books that feature 
bad people doing bad things and, and good people doing bad things for the right reasons. And, you know, most of what I've been attracted to during the pandemic has been, you know, for lack of a better term, you know, pure crap. You know, it started with the wild ride that was Tiger King. <laughs> I'm never going to be able to financially recover from this, you know, Tiger King. And it's progressed a little bit, you know, to watching uh, uh, Law & Order SVU nightly. Billions, which is not a show about good people doing anything because everyone on that show is a bastard. Um, Succession was in there. Again, these are good shows. They're, they're award-winning shows. I mean, maybe not Tiger King, but um, they're not feel good, you know? And, and right now, what I realized is that's what I need. I need a great big bag of feel good. You know, I got it recently with Ted Lasso, which I haven't watched on Apple TV+. Plus. I can't recommend that enough. Okay, here's an author and a guy who interviews authors telling you to watch TV. Yeah, I get it. I know. It's ironic. I should be telling you to read books, and I am. I'm telling you to read Unstoppable. It's a great read. But I have to talk about Ted Lasso. I mean, Jason Sudeikis did a fantastic job with this. I actually binged it with my daughter, Maggie. Um, But, uh, you know, I, I, I also got... A big bag of feel good again. There is darkness, but um, the overall story is is so amazing. You know, it's in a way, it's kind of like a, a David and Goliath story. Um, but but you know, Green uh, captures it with Unstoppable, and I'll let you know that this book can be purchased wherever books are sold. And and I will point out that Joshua will appreciate would appreciate if you picked it up at your local bookstore. And come on, why not do that? Why not go to your local mom and if it's still open. If it's still open, go to your mom and pop bookstore and, and buy uh, Unstoppable. But if you have to buy it online, I'd say, you know, maybe go to uh, visit bookshop.org because a portion of those sales uh, do go to support local bookstores. So that's all I have to say. Now I'm going to roll this interview with Joshua M. Green. It's a fantastic interview. A couple of technical hiccups along the way. I think I smoothed them out in editing. If not, I'm sorry. I'm good, but I'm not that good. You know what I mean? All right. Thanks for listening. And uh, here's my interview with uh, the very affable Joshua M. Green. Um, I'm a lost child of the 60s, like a lot of other people my age. I turned 70 this past year. And um, my thing is India. My thing is yoga and meditation and the greater mystery out there. And uh, I spent 13 years in ashrams bhakti or devotional yoga ashrams and came back. I went in when I was 19 years old. I came out, I was 32. Mm -hmm. Whatever happened in the seventies is a blank for me. I have no idea. Bruce Springsteen. What? I have no idea. <laughs> oh, I lost a decade. Okay. But, um, it, it, it set me on a course for life and I've kind of seen everything through that lens of does this opportunity move me forward on my spiritual journey or am I just adding to the clutter? And I don't want to add to the clutter. Where, where, where did it like sort of enter your mind to, to follow that path at 19? I mean, what was, what was life like before 19? Like what led up to that point? Wow. Well, that's one of those questions that has about 10 different levels <laughs> of answers. If you want to look at it from a psychological perspective, I was the only child of a single mother we lived in a two-room apartment, and uh, 
I always wanted a career in journalism. My mother was in public relations and was quite well regarded in her field. Um, but I needed to know myself better. I never had a male role model, okay? So that's one. So you might say that me accepting a guru, a teacher, from a psychological perspective, might have been a kind of surrogate father environment. If you look at it from a socio-historical perspective, it was the 60s. <laughs> you know, we were dressing crazy anyway with beads and, and robes and flowers or whatever. So moving into an ashram really wasn't such a big change. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we were doing that stuff anyway. Um, from a purely, I don't know what you say, kismet, coincidental perspective, I was a student at the Sorbonne in Paris. And on the Christmas break, 1969, went to London. And someone had suggested, you know, there's this ashram, there's this yoga center there. And uh, you should visit it. It's really interesting. So I went and the people, they were very nice. They were having a vegetarian lunch. I'm, I'm vegan now, right? 50 years later. And uh, they said, so tell us about yourself. And I said, well, I'm in Cobb studying literature. I play organ in a rock band. Really? Come with us. <laughs> so we bundle up the stairs, jump into a Volkswagen minibus. Do you remember the Volkswagen minibus? Uh, sure. They were the most dangerous vehicles ever unleashed on the unwitting public in the history of the automotive industry. Anyway, 15 minutes later, we show up, the door opens, and we're facing a beautiful, elegant street. And I look up, it says Savile Row, and there's a big number three on the door. I'm saying, wait a minute, three Savile Row. Now in 1969, if you were a teenager like me, you knew that three Savile Row, that was Beatles headquarters. Headquarters of the Beatles. I said, what are we doing here? And they said, well, you'll see. We tumble into the studio and there's the big green apple on the wall and we go downstairs and sure enough, there's George Harrison. George Harrison, right? String, skinny as a string bean with Indian beads on his neck and, and wearing a Krishna badge and, and uh, he's embracing some of the people from the ashram and they point to me and mention that I play organ. So he walks over to me and hands me this hand-pumped instrument called a harmonium. And he says, you know, just play along, you know, do your, do your best, do what you can. You know, I'm sitting down and they start recording Indian devotional music. And I'm jamming away on this harmonium thinking, if I stay with these people, I get God and the Beatles. <laughs> okay, I'm in, you know. <laughs> you know. And I stayed for 13 years. Wow. <laughs> wow. So when you, when you, when you left, I mean, was, what else was going on during those 13 years? I mean, are you pursuing a professional, any, any, any professional pursuits or is it really life in, you know, in, in community? Oh, this was full immersion. Now I can, I can recite Sanskrit verses. I can, I'll impress the socks off you with my Sanskrit. <laughs> um, now I, I think the, the point just kind of connecting the dots with what brings us here today is that a point came when I needed to separate myself from that sequestered environment and start living life in the larger world. And I went back to my roots in writing and journalism. And circumstances of life threw me into the Holocaust arena. My wife's late father, Alan Fortunoff, endowed the Holocaust video archive at Yale University, where I now sit on the board. 
I did some documentary films for them and started writing books, many of them biographies of Holocaust survivors. One day the phone rings about eight years ago and a voice says, you know, Mr. Green, I've read some of your books. I think you should write my father's biography. It was Sig Siggy Wilzig's son, Al uh, uh, Ivan. I, I didn't know at the time. And he said, my father survived Auschwitz and he came to America. I said, I'm sorry, stop, 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 stop. No more darkness. I just wrote a biography of George Harrison as a thank you to him for encouraging in my spiritual life. No more dark. He said, and they started screaming. He said, no, no, you don't get it. My, my father was a torch for every immigrant who ever came to America. He was a blazing light. Of, 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 of hope and, 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 and persistence. He came here with nothing and helped build the Washington Holocaust Museum. He's going on and on. So I researched Sicky Wilson, and sure enough, I, Ivan wasn't exaggerating. His father was one of the most amazing success stories in post-war America. Went from pauper to, to business mogul. It was amazing. Yeah, this when when this book came across my my desk, um, you know, I you know I do what all people do, you know, I I read, I just go right to the the back cover, and then I open, I read a few pages, and and just around this time, I'd been doing a lot of studying on on Victor Frankl because I was a I was a psych student way back when. That's what I wanted to be when I when I grew up, you know. So I spent my entire, you know, university career studying psychology and and you know, I read Man's Search for Meaning way back then and and now I'm in my sort of the the second half of my mid 40s. <laughs> what do you call it? late 40s, I guess. And I and I and I find myself, you know, my my kids are are out of the house. They're I, we have triplets, they're 19. They just started university. And I'm kind of an empty nester, a little bit of an empty nester. And, and you know, I'm, I'm searching for like what my phase two is going to be like, what 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 the back nine of my life is. So I picked up Man's Search for Meaning again and and now reading it as as a much older person than I was back then. I, I, I'm seeing things a little bit differently. But but when I when I when I started reading about Ziggy's story and, you know, surviving Auschwitz um, and then really, you know, having a, a, a big life. I think that's probably an understatement. I mean, there's there is a lot of what Frankel was talking about in his book and you know, having, um, you know, having uh, finding meaning in work, finding meaning in love, finding meaning in, in the face of danger. This, this is all kind of coming to me at the same time. So I feel like it's a, it was a very serendipitous book to come across my desk at this point in time. Hmm. Um, wow. why okay. do you suppose, and I had never heard of, of, of Ziggy, Ziggy Wilzig before. It sounds like you hadn't either. I mean, his son is calling you and, and your knee jerk reaction is no more darkness. Why do you suppose his story isn't more widely known? Well, first of all, if you're, if you're of a certain age and you're from New Jersey, you do know Ziggy Wilzig. I mean, he built trust company of New Jersey bank, which was, uh, if I get this right, Ivan's always correcting me. The fourth largest commercial bank in New Jersey. They had about 100 branches by the time it was eventually sold. Um, so he's well known there. He was the banker of choice for the Jewish community, the survivor community, for all of the builders and the um, developers. Um, and he was a very philanthropic man very active in, in uh, social causes. Um, 
uh, retirement homes and, and so on. Um, but we're, we're accustomed to a handful of names. You know, when we think of heroes, when we think of the great names of history, you know, it, it, you can count them on two, two hands. The great contributions to the forward march of humanity is attributable to who knows how many millions of people who have made sacrifices over history whose names we'll never know. Uh, I, I think the important thing is not whether one achieves fame and acclaim as Siggy did, but whether like Siggy, we take the opportunities that are presented to us and make the most of them. One of the things that attracted me to writing this book, Unstoppable, and that name really does describe Siggy perfectly, was his embodying all of the qualities that I, I would want from myself. Creativity, persistence, um, compassion, um, uh, courage. He never let bullies ever intimidate him, never. When he was a kid, there were Jew haters who chased him through the streets. When he was in Berlin in the 30s with his family, the Nazi police threw him into a slave, a forced labor munitions factory. Then they deported him and his family to Auschwitz. He saw 59 members of his family were killed. He watched as his mother and five and seven-year-old niece and nephew were walked to the gas chambers. His father was beaten so hard a few days later that he died in his arms. He suffered the humiliations, the beatings, the starvation that we hear about uh, of people who went through that dark time. Came to America with $240 that he'd managed to save up. No contacts. No education, because they closed all the schools to Jews when he was in grammar school. And he was this little guy. He was less than five and a half feet tall. He described himself as a flat-footed shrimp. That's how he used to describe. But he stood up. He had stood up to the Gestapo, for heaven's sakes. So when he came here and anti-Semites tried to hold him down, keep him back from building an empire in oil and banking... He had a device. He would roll up his sleeve. If he was in a business meeting and he sensed that kind of anti-Semitic vibe in the air, he'd roll up his sleeve. He'd point to the prisoner number tattooed on his arm and he'd put a finger in their face and say, the last person to try to intimidate me was Hitler. He didn't succeed and neither were you. And then he'd turn around and walk out. Wow. I mean, you know, if it, you you just gave me a bunch of statistics on him, you know, I, on paper, if I were a betting man and I'm not, <laughs> if I'm a betting man, I'm not betting on this guy. You know, it, it's I'm not betting on. First of all, he 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 comes with two hundred and forty dollars in his pocket. Um, Seeing the horrors, I mean, just seeing fifty nine people in your family, you know, murdered. Um, father dying in his arms, everything leading up to that point. You know, if I were putting together a profile on him, I'd say, okay, poster child for PTSD, 
um, going to have more resentment than, you know, you could fill a, a football stadium with, um, you know, I'm not betting on, on him, but what's, what was his, what was his secret? I mean, how did he turn what, what for many of us would just be a body full of resentment and turn that into something, you know, so positive, like, it, it, you know, could, could you uncork that for me at all? As best I was able to survive. I mean, it took seven years to write this book. I did a hundred interviews. Mm. I had to get inside the hearts and minds of people who knew him because I never met him. The report was pretty consistent that he was a volcano of a guy he used to suck the air out of room of a room is the way one person described him. And he, if he were here today, Mike, I think he would want your listeners to know that they should never give in to despair. He, he had nightmares. I mean, PTSD didn't get codified in the diagnostic manual to the 1980s. What he was going through, he went through since the 40s. But like others who came out of that hell, what we call the Holocaust, he suffered from nightmares every night. You, never, you don't escape the Holocaust. You don't get over the Holocaust. Okay, I mean, We need to look at this quite candidly. But he had a way of even, even dealing with the nightmares. And the, when I say nightmares, I don't mean the kind of nightmares that you and I have. He would have nightmares of his children walking into the fires of the crematorium oven. I mean, bad stuff that he didn't like to talk about. He said once to the Steven Spielberg show of foundation in a video testimony, he said, as hard as it may be to believe, I don't think I could live without the nightmares. Because, he said, they give me a hyper-realistic sense of the miracle of being alive, of the difference between life and death, particularly as a Jew, and I would never, ever give that up. So I think he would want people to know that, look, we've been through some hard times here. Let's, you know, we can we can accept that it's been I, I've lost friends to COVID. It's it's been difficult living isolated and so on and so forth. Uh, but there's something weird about us human beings. We we seem to find our greatest resources under the most difficult of circumstances. And there's always a, a thin thread of light. And if you look for it, if you don't give in to the despair, you can find that thin thread of light. Can I tell a, a Siggy story here? Please, please do. January 1945, freezing cold winter. The administrators of Camp Auschwitz are hearing the Russians coming from the east, so they have to close down the camp. They take the few thousand surviving prisoners and march them from Poland to camps deeper inside Nazi Germany. They have nothing but a, you know, a thin thread of a blanket to protect them. And Siggy's shoes were these deteriorating wooden clogs held together by threads of string. And the string broke in the cold. And without his shoes, he would get frostbite and he would die. It would kill him. His body wasn't strong enough to fight off that kind of infection. So what to do? What to do? When they bedded down the prisoners for night, in the snow, by the way, in his pocket, the only thing he was able to take with him from the camp was a spoon, an old spoon. And he had sharpened the spoon on a, on a bit of a 
rock so that it had a bit of an edge to it so he could cut things. It, he saw a little sapling, a birch sapling nearby. So when the guards weren't looking, he crawled over, scored strips of bark off the tree, then crawled back to his sleeping place, rubbed them to get them warmer between his palms, and then braided them together into strips of shoelaces. And he tied them around his feet and then gingerly tested it out. And sure enough, they held literally a string of of tree bark saved his life. And I, I think he would say, look, the, the hand of the Almighty was, he was a religious man. He believed that God intervened in his life. But that did not stop him from exercising his initiative. That did not stop him from exercising his God-given intelligence and insight and intuitions to figure out what to do. You know, even if you're a believing person, you have to put yourself in an environment where that grace can enter and help you in your life. So get out of bed, <laughs> get off your duff, you know, and, and go do something. And that's what Siggy did in spades, <laughs> in spades. I imagine there'd, there'd, there'd be times where he would question that belief in, in the almighty, you know, just seeing, you know, the worst of humanity, did did you uncover anything, any doubt in his in his life as as it pertains to his his religious faith? Uh, only one. And he would talk about this on occasion with his children. His son, Alan, one time asked him, how come you don't go to shul on Saturday? He said, well, I've got a, it's complicated. <laughs> he said, I have a complicated relationship with God. You know, I believe in God. And and uh, without uh, the almighty, how would a little guy like me have ever survived? But I, I can't accept the death of a million and a half children. You know, a million of them under the age of 12. He said, that I have a hard time. He, he, he had a rabbi who, uh, he, Katz, Rabbi Katz, he would talk with his rabbi about these things. And that was the one thing that they both shared was, a, a uh, look, Elie Wiesel had the same problem. Elie Wiesel was the guy who, brought Siggy in to help build the Washington Holocaust Museum because Siggy knew all about finance and business. Elie Wiesel said the Holocaust could not have happened with God, but it also could not have happened without God. That was his dilemma as a believing Jew. Uh, Siggy never resolved that, but he did not allow it to destroy his faith. He tells a story. Can, have we got time for another Siggy story? We've got, we've got plenty of time. After he was liberated by the American Army from Camp Mauthausen in April of 45, he volunteered to work for the U.S. Counterintelligence Corps, searching out Nazis who were hiding in the towns and villages of Germany and Austria and so on. And his job took him on an airplane ride one time, his first plane ride. It was a cold, cloudy, rainy day. And he describes that the plane took off. And when it broke through the cloud bank, on the other side was a bright, beautiful blue sky. And there was a brilliant, shining sun. And he said, in that moment, my faith was reaffirmed. He said, God was talking to me. 
He said in the camps, there was this big debate. Is there a God? Is he alive anymore? Maybe he split the scene. Maybe he's abandoned us. You know, maybe he wants us dead. All these kinds of discussions. He said, when I broke, when the plane broke through the clouds and I saw that sun, it was God talking to me saying, don't despair. Sometimes a cloud like Hitler may come between us, but I'm still here. And, and uh, he loved his life. And despite whatever confusions there might have been about the workings of the Almighty, he loved his life so much. Mike, he would get up in restaurants and start singing and dancing. I mean, you know, <laughs> more like an entertainer than a bank president. You know, that's the kind of guy he was. <laughs> yeah. Did, did you get a sense um, if, if he knew why he survived the camps? I mean, out of, you know, six million plus people who were killed, why was he... Did he have a sense of that? Did, did, did you uncover that at all? Well, you know, you're, you're pointing to one of the grand issues in, in philosophy. You know, the technical term is theodicy. You know, how do we reconcile a God-centered creation with evil? And, and how do we position ourselves in that scheme of things? Um, Siggy never never presumed to present himself as a, as, as a great philosopher. He would always say, look, I, I barely finished grade school. You know, what he had was street smarts. So when he looked at his own life, uh, I, I, for him, I think it was less a matter of deep philosophic reflection and more just gratitude. You know, he, it, it, it hurt him deeply when he thought about his eight brothers and sisters all dying and his mother and his father. And I mean, you know, how do you, how do you live with these memories? But for him, we're here now. Let's, let's move forward. We, he had a saying emblazoned on a marble plaque in his office. It said, free men who forget their bitter past do not deserve a brighter future. So he never forgot his bitter past, but he did not allow it to control him. I think, I think the right word to describe Siggy is uh, he was a good manager. He was a manager of people. He was a manager of money. And he was a manager of his own life experiences. He could dovetail. He exorcised his demons by talking about them in public lectures. He, unlike some survivors who really just could not ever bear to talk about what they went through, Siggy used his life experience to educate people. He wanted people to know, this is what happened. I've seen this. Stand up to the deniers. Do not allow them to put forward their propaganda and be prepared yourself. Do not think, well, this doesn't concern me because I'm not a Jew. This concerns you. This concerns all of us who are a part of the human race. He said, today, maybe they come for the Jews tomorrow. It'll be for another minority group. This is a story. Unstoppable is a story for anybody who has a connection with an immigrant past. And that's most of the country. Right. right. If that sounds a little presumptuous on my part. But, you know, his point was, this is something for everyone. Don't think this just concerns the Jews and the Germans. Yeah, you know, you you open the book with with um, 
you know, his entering, you know, New York Harbor. Um, and, you know, I couldn't help. I, I remember my, my grandmother, um, was an Italian immigrant, um, on, on my mother's side of the family, my father's side of the family had been here for a little while, but, um, I would, I would love to listen to her stories, um, about sort of living in, um, living in New York, you know, when she lived in New York and, and how, you know, people really didn't, they didn't know English. So they would act out in grocery stores, the things that they wanted, you know, so she would, you know, cluck like a chicken when she needed eggs or I don't know what, I don't want to know what she did when she needed milk, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but I, I used to love hearing those stories and, you know, I, I, you know, I love immigrant stories. I really do. Um, because they think they, they could teach us so much about what perhaps we take for granted, um, you know, from from my point of view. But um, wow. Um, you know, when you were researching this, so so it took you seven years to write. What were some of the biggest things, some of the biggest aha moments you had, whether it was about his life or or just or just insights into the human condition um, in general? Uh, okay. Here's, here's, here's what, there are several answers to that. Here's one that that's dear to me. Writing this book taught me what it means to love your father. Um, this, this book, uh, technically I'm the author. It is as much to the credit of, uh, uh, Siggy's children, Ivan, principally, because mm-hmm. Ivan was the main person on this but also his daughter, Sherry, their young, his youngest child, Alan, they, I, I, they taught me what it means to love your father. Um, he was a difficult man. I mean, you know, the, some of the life that his children live is, you know, textbook, second generation, children of survivor stuff. But there isn't a word I'm not exaggerating. There isn't a word, a sentence, a paragraph, a page in this book that has not been carefully read, studied, corrected by Ivan and by Sherry so that their father's story would be honored with total accuracy, with the, the affection that it deserves, with the, 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 the um, incredible scope of emotion you know, it goes from the pits of horror to the to the outrageous heights of of hilarity. <laughs> you know, and they they uh, my blessing was that they had they guided me in telling their father's story. So that was one big revelation. I I didn't have that with other survivor biographies that I've written. I was on my own. And that's a, you can imagine what kind of a responsibility it is when someone entrusts their life story to you. Now I'm responsible you know, for how the world is going to see you. You know, seriously. You know, yeah, I got to live with my choices here. So it was a great blessing having them guide the effort. That was that's one answer. Well, that's yeah, one. yeah. Just one thing you said there, and and if if this encroaches on too personal you know, tell me to, to move on. But you know, you mentioned that this is teaching, you know, you about loving a father and it's not lost on me that we started a conversation with you telling me that you were, you know, the, the child of a single mother. Um, 
Any re- any reaction to that at all? Yeah. Where are you going? <laughs> uh, I mean, okay. I mean, I suppose you know you're 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 forcing me to think. How do I answer a question like that in a way that's relevant to your listeners who are tuning in? They were told they were going to hear about the book Unstoppable. Um, look, maybe in a way like Siggy, I had to invent my own childhood. I had to invent my own growing up because I didn't have a role model at home. My mother was amazing. My mom was my best friend. She had me when she was 25. She died just this past October at 95. So I had her for 70 years, right? She was literally my best friend. We talked like magpies three, four, five times a day. And I'd go see her at her little apartment in the city. It was great. We talked about everything. My dad was a good man. He was an artist, a musician, songwriter, um, a gentle soul. Uh, Maybe not schooled in parenting when he and my mom were married, and I can't hold that against him. Um, But I suspect that part of what has attracted me to Siggy is some kind of personal identifying with the idea of being on your own. Uh, Siggy, when he was a kid, because the, the other kids in Kuryanka, West Prussia, were always badgering him and, and yelling at him and telling him, go to Palestine, you little Jew so-and-so. I won't use the word on the air. Um, and so he, was, he would say to them, and you, you, you Christians, you, you, you should go to Rome. And he would run away. <laughs> so he wasn't hanging out with kids much. He used to hang out with the adults and he would study how they thought, how they would calculate how they would weigh options and come to decisions. He'd watch them playing cards, how they did that. So from a very young age, his role modeling was wherever he could get it, you might say, right? And of course, once his father died, he was 16 when his father died in Auschwitz. Then he had to use those instincts to just to stay alive, right? So maybe... On a subconscious level, I can't say this for certain. Maybe I was identifying to an extent with having to invent tools for survival and, and uh, you know, being without a father, technically speaking. Uh, but um, I don't know how important that is, really. I think I think the story stands on its own. It was a privilege for me to have some role in writing Unstoppable and, and uh, really channeling the memories and the insights of other people who did know him. Um, yeah. There you are. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, his kids. Um, it, it sounds like he, he may not have always been an easy person to, to live with. Um, do you, do you, did you get the sense that, that his children understood him and, and, and had some, you know, understanding of, of why their dad was the way he was? Yes. Very, very smart. All three of them. Brilliant. I mean, insightful, uh, talented in so many ways. So charitable. Oh my gosh. Sherry is like. Is like a saint, you know, just her whole life is dedicated to charitable causes and they all engage in 
supporting the Jewish community in different ways. Um, sure, they, they understood that, you know, he was damaged, you might say. And so when he would go off in his tirades, he was a yeller. Oh, my gosh, was he a yeller. <laughs> I get a little bit because his son Ivan, shall we say, uh, learned his father's talent for uh, um, high volume locution. <laughs> <laughs> that's a nice way of putting it <laughs> so yeah sure I'm, you know i'm getting a sense of what it was like to be and everyone i interviewed who knew him like from his bank for example they all said <laughs> he used to yell and then hang up the phone you never knew when he, if he was still on the phone with you or the, <laughs> and never say goodbye <laughs> yeah they understood they understood that um things some things were very very difficult for him but he loved them. My God, did he love his children. I mean, they, they were miracles. You know, there's a guy named Bouquet, Melvin Bouquet, who's a teacher and has written books about this, who is also the son of a uh, survivor father. He said, you don't know what it's like. Unless you're actually the child of a survivor, you have no idea. You're a miracle, you know, that they would survive the Holocaust and have a child you are the meaning of their life, right? How do you live up to that? How do you, how you, it's impossible. You know, they set a standard for you. You know, you're, you have to be a saint. You have to be a miracle. And, and uh, not everybody, but in Siggy's case, certainly he expected certain things from them. He wanted them to go into the business. Ivan was more interested in a career in music. And, uh, but even Ivan, you know, he said, how can I disappoint this man? He's been through so much. He's built a fortune that's allowed us to have a comfortable life. So he went and worked in the bank, too. It's, it's all there in the book. I mean, it, they were very good about allowing me to tell their story in the book as well. Yeah. Well, um, you know, he, he made um, three promises or three vows. Um you know, the outline in the beginning of the book and um, I was just searching for them and I, I don't have my notes in front of me because I'm uh, clearly unprepared. But do you feel like I mean, one was, you know, meeting and marrying a, a Jewish woman and having a, a number of kids. What, what were the other ones? And did, did, did he accomplish that? Was it mission accomplished? All right, for I'll him? tell you. But first, I want to set the scene. Is that OK? Yeah, set, okay. set away. Imagine the moment. He's arriving on this immigrant boat in New York Harbor. He sees the Statue of Liberty, you know, glowing in the morning sunlight. It's the middle of winter. It's a snowstorm, biggest snowstorm in 50 years. Gets off the boat, 21 years old, 1947. The highest organization, you know, the immigrant group, has found him a room in Hotel Marseille up on 108th Street or wherever in Harlem at the time. It, it used to be beautiful, and that by now it was run down. So they give him his own room. First time he has his own room in his life. He's looking down on the street. It's a crummy little room with cockroaches running across the floor, people scurrying, cars honking, trucks running here and there, snow falling, freezing cold. And for him, it's, a, it, it's, it's paradise. It's absolute paradise. He can't believe his luck. Here he is in America, for heaven's sakes, 
have to excuse me a second. I'm afraid I. Yeah, please. I left my uh, Fitbit somewhere and it's here. It's making noises. Thank you. I'll start that over a sentence or two back. Yeah. That's okay. <laughs> sure, go ahead. Here he is looking down on, on uh, post-war America. And even though he's poor as a church mouse and it's freezing cold, he's got nothing. He, he feels like he's in paradise. I mean, he survived Auschwitz, for heaven's sakes. He survived the Nazis. And he's here in America, and he says three things. One, I'm never going to go hungry again. Whatever I have to do, I'm never going to go hungry again. Two, I'm going to have, I'm going to get married. I'm going to have children. I'm going to help rebuild the Jewish people. And three, if I ever see injustice, I will not refrain from speaking up. So one, he becomes one of the biggest rags to riches success story in post-war American history. There's vow number one. <laughs> he marries Naomi Sisselman from New Jersey, has three children, supports Jewish causes all his life. There's vow number two. And he takes to the airwaves to fight denial, radio, public lectures, uh, and there's vow number three. Helps build the Washington Holocaust Museum. And whenever there was injustice, he spoke up. So, you know, he died of cancer in 2003, but he was a man who had achieved the things in his life he wanted to achieve despite the tragic history. And I really think that he was in many ways, a role model, because, you know, we all go through some tragedies. I mean, it's been a tough time and everybody has a sad story just now to tell. But he would want us to know that there's another side to this. Don't give in to the despair. Um, no, listen to my story because there's something for you to understand here. And and enjoy your life. The, the not giving in to despair. Um, that to me, it's it's almost a superpower. Uh, to, to be able to 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 stay strong through these times. That we're as we're having this conversation, we're hopefully coming out of uh, a pandemic. Um, you know, with with COVID nineteen, um, and. You know, this this is nothing can compared to the horrors that he faced. Um, I, I couldn't even begin to compare. Um, but the, the, I think that spirit holds true. You know, the, the, the trying to find a silver lining during these times um, in, in today's day and age. And this is, again, an unfair question to ask because now you're having to step into his shoes. But I mean, at, at this point, who better than you who has spent seven years of, of your life sort of researching and, and really getting to know him? Um, what would what would his point of view be on sort of the social climate in the United States right now? So his adopted home country Um can you postulate what his point of view might be with our current social climate? 
I, it's on his Siggy. If he were alive today, I think would be responding to what's going on on two levels. One is on a personal level, and the other is on a, you might say, a social action level. On the personal level, he would want people to know that it, you have despair, but it does not define you. Don't let it define you. We, we all go through tragic times, but you have the, the resources to manage those experiences in a way that you can continue on with your life. Um, just for a moment, stepping back and putting my yogi hat on, <laughs> you know, the, the Sanskrit texts say that we, there's the material self and then there's the transcendent self. The transcendent self is the witness of the events of your life. We all witness the events of our life they don't have to be what we identify as who we are. I mean, I'm, I'm, I don't want to invest Siggy with, you know, yogic powers or, you know, uh, a, a, an agreement with the, the Vedantic texts or anything. But there is a bit of that in his worldview that external circumstances are what they are. Look, anti-Semitism, for example, he, he never expected anti-Semitism was going to go away. That's just the world doing its business. But you can be prepared for it and you can understand how to respond to it when it happens. And you, and you must be prepared to respond to it when it happens. And that's the social action part of how he would answer your question. He addressed the cadets and officers at West Point, for example. One of the, he was the first Holocaust survivor to speak at West Point. And he, he said to them, you know, West Point is where senators and and, and Governors and presidents have graduated, you military academy there. He said, one of you may be our next president or someday may be president of the United States. You have to know what happened so that you will be prepared so that it will never happen again. And he wanted people to be aware for their personal well-being and for the larger social well-being. Did you get a sense from... Ziggy from learning about Ziggy, how he may have dealt with despair or managed despair, given all that he's, you know, he'd been through. Look, Ziggy didn't believe in therapy. (laughs) He was his own therapist. Um, He had his own way of gauging who was crazy and who's not crazy. You know, he was the one who did not give in to despair. He was the one who did not run and throw himself on the electric wire and commit suicide. He was the one who worked to find some way to stay alive. He was the one who did whatever he could with what he called his fox-like instincts to outsmart the SS. He said, I looked down on them despite their greater power. I looked down on them because of what they were. And he found ways to literally fancy footwork around them. He heard two guards talking about how they needed bricklayers. He walked right up to them, 16 years old. He says, oh, I had four years as a master bricklayer. Yeah, no experience bricklaying. They said, okay, great. So they put him to work as a bricklayer. And he watched other bricklayers, and he learned <laughs> as he was doing the job. 
Then he was getting sick working outdoors and said, I got to get indoors somehow. He heard a guard saying, we need a doctor's assistant for the prisoner hospital. Walks right up and says, I had two years as a doctor's assistant. They put him to work in the hospital. In, the, in his testimony, he said, I knew about as much of being a doctor's assistant as you know about belly dancing. <laughs> but he did it, you know, to stay alive. He would invent these crazy ways. So he he was resourceful in that way. He never gave into this. He didn't give up. He didn't give up. Now, look, you mentioned Frankel earlier. We have to be a little careful when we talk about this, because in the arena of Holocaust studies, there are some very important considerations when we talk about life and death in Auschwitz, uh, the experiences of Holocaust witnesses and so on, that um, we don't impose on the survivor experience our own need for some kind of a, a, of a happy ending, mm -hmm. uh, some kind of um, redemptive message, you know, that we human beings were so resilient and so on, because the downside of that, and of course we should celebrate the human spirit, but the downside is that we risk insulting the experiences and tragedies of those who did not survive. Because somebody was killed, does that mean they were not resourceful? Does that mean they didn't have human spirit? They didn't have the will to live? You know, we, we make up these explanations about those who survived found meaning in their life. They had, they had a book they wanted to do. They had a love they wanted to return to. Well, what if you were a poor, uneducated farmer and you didn't have some great novel you were waiting to finish? You didn't have some big project in, in, your, in your heart. You know, as many lived as died with projects as without projects. So we have to be careful about finding a formula that will explain things. You know, there's this compulsion to find meaning at the heart of the Holocaust as though just understanding it on its own terms is insufficient. Well, I for one think it, it is sufficient to understand the Holocaust. Yeah. And, and um, there's something about it. You know, if you study Afri African-American history in college, right? Nobody stands up and says, well, I think, you know, if we're going to study African-American history, we should also study the history of the Italians. We should also study the history of the Puerto Ricans. We should also somehow this broadening away from the specificity of the Holocaust to make it an example of genocides or part of a larger examination of our history is reserved for the Holocaust. And I'm not quite sure I understand why other than some people have a concern that too much focus on the Holocaust might actually be a ploy for winning support and sympathy for the state of Israel or whatever. I really don't know. But I do know that if, if we want to understand anything about the world we're living in, we cannot ignore the realities of what happened in the Holocaust. And we compromise those details and those realities when we look for simplistic messages of bravery and heroism. 
Right. Right. It's something so, so complicated does not have simple solutions. Um, you know, there's no simple or simple explanations. I should say not solutions, but, um, well, this, your book unstoppable, um, seven years in the making, uh, it is, um, I, I mean, I, I, I've not finished it. Um, but it is, it is unbelievable. It's an unbelievable story. Um, where, where can people learn more about it, Joshua? And, and where, uh, where can they buy it? Well, there, there's a website, Unstoppable Siggy, S-I-G-G-I, unstoppablesiggy.com. Um, I'm a big fan of local bookstores, so I hope people would support their local bookstores. If you can't get out, it is available on all of the major sites. And uh, enjoy. You know, I, I chose to write this book because... It's only the first 80 pages that are Siggy's tragic experiences in the Holocaust. The rest of the book is all about this amazing, you know, volcano of a, of a little guy who would never take no for an answer <laughs> and, and beat people down with tall tales and funny jokes and, and loved his life. And, and uh, I thought that that's a good story. I, I'll, I'll tell that story. And, uh, and tell it you did. Thank you very much for the time uh, this morning. Uh, Joshua, I appreciate it. Sorry for the technical hiccups we had. Uh, it's sort of in the middle there. We'll we'll fix those. Um, and, and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Mike, thank you. You're a wonderful interviewer. I enjoyed our time here. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll take any compliments I can get. <laughs> All right. Thanks again. All right. So this is just uh, just got to do a little something. There we go. Um, I just had to finish uploading. Uh, thank you so much. I'm sure you're on a, a whirlwind tour to, to promote this. And, and I do appreciate the time you spent with me. I'm going to do some editing on this and it'll it'll get up um, early next week, early next week. Very good. So, all right. That's of some service. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Thank you for this, uh, this story. Um, it is fantastic. I'm going to uh, be promoting it quite a bit. So be well, Mike. All right. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Well, there you have it, my interview with Joshua M. Green. I hope you enjoyed it. hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed recording it. As a reminder, his book, uh, Unstoppable, about the life of Holocaust survivor Ziggy Wilzig, is available wherever books are sold. You can also learn more at unstoppablezigy.com. I know it sounds like I'm saying that with a Z. It's really an S. Unstoppable, S-I-G-G-I.com. And of course, if you want to learn more about me and my work, please visit MikeCarlin.com. That's C-A-R-L-O-N, MikeCarlin.com, where you can check out my books and maybe about 70 other episodes of Uncorking a Story that are available for your listening pleasure. So for all the hardworking men and women and dogs, there's a couple of those here at Uncorking a Story, this is Mike Carlin, as always, saying thank you for listening and until next time.